Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Belief Beat. This is a podcast out of Unity Lutheran Church, which is part of the ELCA in Brookfield, Wisconsin. And on this podcast, we sit down and talk about things that matter with people that matter. My name is Muriel. I'm one of the pastors at Unity, and I am your host for this week. And I will start by telling you that, so I was out of town this weekend officiating a wedding for an old college friend. I went all by myself. Uh, I left Andrew and the girls at home. So I, friends, had more uninterrupted conversations with adults this week than I have had in a very long time, which was awesome. Uh, But I tell you this because many, many times this weekend, I said something like, that reminds me of a story from this podcast we're recording. Or, oh my goodness, I have to tell you what someone told me on this podcast. And, you know, I've been thinking about what someone told me in this interview for this podcast, which is all just one very long way of saying thank you so much to John Purnell, age 78, Vina Townsend, age 83, and Marilyn Copland, age 87, uh, three Unity members whose stories we've been sharing over the past few weeks in. And this episode, this is our third and our final in this three-part series we're calling Memory Lane. It is a collection of stories from some of Unity's older members about things they've experienced during their lives. If you haven't yet heard the first and second installments, you can find them on our website or above this in your podcast playlist. The first episode focused on their childhoods, first toys, first jobs. Last week's had some great stories from high school, dating, weddings. Um, But part of that first episode, though, it had some of Marilyn and Vina's memories from World War II. John was too young for that. Um, But it was very powerful for someone from my generation who's only read about the war in history books to talk with people who actually lived through that history. So we are kind of going more in that direction today. We will ask John, Vina, and Marilyn what they remember about things like Kennedy's assassination, the civil rights movement, strikes and recessions they lived through. And then each of them looked back on their life and what they've learned along the way, including some real gems that I am going to treasure as guiding stars for my own life. But let's dive in. So first, you'll hear John talking about his time in the Army which overlapped with both Kennedy's assassination, that one is quite the story, and the integration of higher education. And you went into the Army when you, like, you just turned 17? Yeah. Good experience? Bad experience? Uh, The best experience of my life. Why is that? Because they they teach you things they don't even know they're teaching you. They probably know, but you don't know. They teach you how to get along with people. They teach you discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, they teach you how to do things. Yeah. We were, um, Vietnam wasn't going there yet, but the Vietnamese officers would come to Fort Bragg and we'd train them. We'd go down in the swamps in Georgia and South Carolina and train them in guerrilla warfare. Mm-hmm. And you learn a lot from that. And from those officers there. Yeah, I bet. Uh, what years was this? I was in from 1960 to 63. I got out the day Kennedy got shot. 
Really? What do you remember from that day? <laughs> a dumb lieutenant. We were in the pay line. You're not, we're out. We're totally discharged, but we're waiting in the pay line. He shut down the pay line when he heard that the president got shot. And there we sat on the grass outside the, t the pay tent for probably an hour or so. And a major came by and said, what's the matter here? We said, a dumb lieutenant won't pay us. <laughs> and the lieutenant, he went in there and he got us paid. When John was still in the army, he was part of 10,000 troops that were sent to provide backup when the first black student enrolled at the University of Alabama. And ironically, his division was still segregated at the time, which created some major tension during the trip. You remember James Meredith? Mm-mm, you know tell me. who he was? Tell me. He was the first black student into the University of Alabama. Really, James Meredith? I was there. You were there when he started going? Uh, our, um, Division went to um, Columbus, Mississippi. There's an Air Force base. Uh -huh. And that's not too far from uh, where the university is in. What the heck town is that? Anyway, it's not too far by helicopter. And so we were, the Army was segregated while we were there. Mm -hmm. The black, uh, our, where I was, was about 75 to 80 percent black. Wow! And well, I, I, um, we had no trouble. Um, we everybody got along. Was your unit segregated? The whole division that was down there. Oh, just when you went? Yeah, the first sergeant was black. Mm -hmm. And so the blacks had to pull guard duty. They had to pull all the KP and all that kind of stuff, cleaning up the area. And the first sergeant kept track of that. And when we got back, he didn't like that. Nobody liked that. What's KP? Kitchen police. Mm. You, you make Scrubbing rotten, pots and stuff. Food, cleaning yeah. up after the guys who make it. Yeah. He, he was airborne in the mm. service. Yeah. They, but then... We sat, what we did in the daytime, I would have rather been doing something that those other guys were doing. Mm -hmm. um, we sat on the helicopters, would hold about 20 people. So a group of 20 would be sitting, they had a thing in the back, you could walk a ramp. Mm -hmm. You'd be sitting, uh, not inside, but right at the bottom of the ramp, mm -hmm. with your guns, with no ammunition, but the ammunition would be issued if you got called to go. This was we never got called to go to to Alabama. But you were on call in case stuff yeah. got ugly at the university. Yeah. Ten thousand troops. Ten thousand. Yep. I know you're told yeah. Wow. And you never got called in. Nope. And do you remember what you thought about it? Like, did you think it was? crazy that they were letting a black student in or yeah, it was dumb i mean um, i'm not a segregationist i don't they should have just let him in vina mm -hmm. also had a lot of memories of school integration but for her it was from the teacher perspective 
She was an elementary teacher in Elm Grove in 1975 when lawmakers passed the controversial Chapter 220 program, which some of you might remember. It provided busing for black students in the city to attend suburban schools and also for suburban students to attend specialty schools in the city. What it meant for Vina was that for her last years in the classroom, she had a mix of local white students and bused in black students, and Vina actually started riding the bus in with them. Well, we had busing from, they were trying to equalize the education system. And it was where kids from Milwaukee could come to any one of the suburbs. If you had a quota you could meet, you couldn't go over the quota. Mm -hmm. And so I had, um, I had, uh, oh, well, the last eight years or so, I had a mixture of races in my classroom. This is when you were teaching? Yeah, yeah. So I had Philippine, Chinese, Swedish, and 220 little, little black American kids. Wow. Are you saying 220? Yeah, that's what, what does they, that mean. The, the 220 was the law. Okay. That would allow them the busing, to come here. The busing law. Yeah. 220 kids. Yeah. And for a, a year, I had especially difficult, we had especially difficult group that would come. They'd ride the bus, and I went down to 18th and Olive. I, my friend would drive me down, and then I would get on the bus with the kids and ride out because they were, they'd come out there, and they, you had to, you, your first hour was calming them down. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that much time with them. I wanted to, so I went down you there, and a mean road. old Mrs. Towsend gave them assigned seats, and um, it made a whole big difference in it. What grade was this? Uh, this was second grade, but it, the bus was more than second grade. It had, you know, all the kids from that general area that would yeah. go to 18th and Olive. That's okay. And the school, like. What was the feeling among staff at the school about this rule? You know, I don't have a strong memory that there was, it was either way. I think I was excited about it because, and I'll tell you really honestly, these children came with so many deficits and so many problems outside of school. Yeah. I mean... It was, it was challenging. Yeah. As Vina describes it, in addition to the challenges of mixing cultures and incomes, there was also the challenge of integrating special needs students in the standard classroom. It really was. And then, of course, when I had the most gorgeous little guy, he had huge brown eyes. I mean, oh, he was just wonderful. But I had him... I had a combination class of, towards my last five years, I guess, of normies, you know, normies, and then special needs children. The special needs children I had were the ones whose parents would not sign them up. They didn't want them labeled. I get it, you know, but they also didn't get all of the benefits they could have from the special needs programs. So this little guy, oh, he was a character. I had to teach him on the floor. I had, all my kids didn't have desks. A lot of them were on the floor because that's where they were comfortable. 
and they would learn when they weren't stretching their legs out to kick the next person, you know. <laughs> That's all part of the game. Yes. But anyway, he turned into a head flusher. I had a bathroom attached to my classroom, and for some reason, he would go in there and flush his head in the toilet. And I would, the kids would tell me when this happened, if I was involved with something. But after a couple, I kept these kids longer than a year, some of them, I just, you know. And I was sure he was gonna drown in there if I didn't find him. I couldn't, between my lungs and the head flusher, I finally had to. That was the last straw. Yeah. I couldn't turn, I couldn't leave school at school. You were so invested. I was very invested in these kids. Yeah. You know, or I wouldn't have ridden the bus with them every morning. Fred used to say, what a heck of a way to start your day. I said, you know what? It pays big dividends during the morning. Yeah, I bet it did. It did. I bet it did. It did. They were calm. Mm -hmm. They were sick of being with me. So they were happy to get there. (laughs) Yep, perfect. (laughs) You know, so yeah, it's it's been a life. It's been a good life. Vina would have loved to keep teaching, but eventually health problems forced her to retire. See, I had to leave teaching not because I retired, but because my lungs were so bad. I really, yeah, I have sarcoidosis and bronchiectasis. It's an autoimmune disease. It can go to your lungs, your brain, your heart. Yeah. I'm very lucky it's gone only to my lungs. But they would get colds and I would get pneumonia and then I got TB. Wow. So, you know, so the doc said, I can't give you any guarantees if you remain in that situation. So my family said, this is it, Mom. You're, you're, you're through. When was that? When did you leave 93. So you taught for a while. Yeah. I know. Oh, yeah. I taught 26 years. 26 years. I didn't teach when the kids were. I didn't teach till Patty was in kindergarten. A little bit older. Yeah. I stayed home yeah. with the kids. And then I only subbed. Would you have wanted to teach longer? Oh, yes. You would have. Oh, yes. I go, for years, I couldn't watch the school buses when they would be training oh. in, in, like, August. They'd be doing their practicing their routes. That was awful. I just hated it. Yeah. Vina said that even with all of those challenges, her early years of teaching and parenting were some of the very best of her life. Have you had a favorite favorite chapter of your life? I think, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. If I could go back to the point where um, the kids were kind of in grade school, the three kids, Mm -hmm. we were so busy with them, and they were just so, you know, enthusiastic that I would go there any day of the week. Yeah. Was it hard? Because I was teaching. Yeah. But I just loved every minute of it, and so did Fred. He was forever coaching or, you know, helping with soap, you know, soapbox derby or whatever. I was struck in all these interviews by how much loss there was in all of their stories. Vina needing to leave teaching, watching those school buses all those years. Marilyn burying first one husband and now a second. John's father dying when he was nine, his mother still pretty young right after he and Barb got married. 
And now, even as I interviewed him, he's in the assisted living facility visiting his wife, Barb. Um, Some losses were just brutal um, and had to be, just have to be gotten through. Um, Some losses, as hard as they might have been, you do hear in their story how it opened the door eventually to something good. Uh, Like this one, when John lost his first job out of the army almost immediately after getting it. Well, I got a job at uh, Pontiac Motors in Detroit, or in Pontiac, Michigan. And um, I got laid off about three, almost four weeks after they hired. I got laid off because there was a strike at Buick, and we were making Buick engines. Mm-hmm. So I never went back there. I just came to visit my brother in Milwaukee, and I met Barbara, and I just stayed there. And for Marilyn, it was several years after the death of her first husband, Warren, that she met her now recently deceased second husband, Jack, who passed away this spring. What was my age? Well, I was 68 when, when Warren died. And I had a year of grieving, and then I had my, my hip surgery in 04, and in 05, I started, uh, we started playing cards with Jack and his friends, 05, and from there on, and we played a lot, a lot of sheep said a lot of games and parties we went to. Yeah. We were part of each other's lives. So we got married. Is it? So actually we dated for seven years and we were married eight years. We have a total of 15 years together. 15 years, 15 great years. They were, they were wonderful years of my life. And I say it was through God. Yeah. He put us together and he made two people happy. Yeah. And you made a lot of us happy too. So we just had a lot of, a lot of good times together. Marilyn had some interesting thoughts on the differences between first and second marriages. Was your second marriage easier than the oh, first marriage? Oh, I think marriage? so. You were more growing up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot easier. Yeah. Of course, uh, Jack rolled with the punches, too, you know. Yeah. And we, we, you know, got to each other's ways and their ways of thinking and... They just rubbed off with each other, so we started thinking the same. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, but this meeting Jack and being with Jack is one of the best years of my life. That was wonderful together. Yeah. God gave us this time together. Yeah. Wish it was still going on, but that's how that life moves on. Life moves on, hey? Marilyn also said that the grief after each death was different. Is it easier or harder, just the grief and recovering after his death? Is that easier than when Warren died or harder? Well, I kept working right away. I think that saved me mentally. And... uh, but uh, 
It's not been easy and very lonesome. Yeah. And uh, it's hard to give up Jack because he was such a wonderful person. Yeah. So, that's that. Yeah. Marilyn had her candle from Jack's funeral lit and on the table as we talked together that day. But I was there all the while he needed me. I was there yeah. for him. Yeah. I was there every day. And I was very thankful for that. Yeah. So I'm glad you're part of this, Jack. So I got your candle burning there. Yeah. And uh, to know how I felt about you, because I love you very much. And, uh, it was hard to say amen. Yeah. yeah. But you put a little flicker in my life yet as we burn this <laughs> candle. Yeah. A candle of hope. Yep. Her candle of hope. I loved that. And I asked Marilyn what hope she has now for the rest of her life. To be honest, I was impressed and a little bit jealous of her answer. And I'm thinking maybe hope looks a little different at the end of your life than it does from the middle. Do you have things you still hope to do? Like, do you have bucket list before you die? No. I'll just sort of accept them as I run into them, I guess. Oh, yeah, let's do this for that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Totally. All right. One hurdle at a time. John and Barb, too, talked about accepting new challenges as they come up. If you remember, our conversation with them was from Barb's room in the congregational home where she'd had to move to rehab after her latest Parkinson's-related health setback. And John was visiting her all the time, like every day, until a COVID case on her floor sent her floor into quarantine for two weeks. And at one point they lost power in that big storm, which meant no TV for a while. You guys have lived through a lot. Yeah. We have, but yeah. we made it. Yeah. You know, except you now for this little backup. But if I can, not if, but when I walk now, it's going to have to just be struggle, you know. Mm -hmm. If I could just get off the chair and go, whoop, you know. But the good Lord says not yet. So. But you have come a long way in the last week. Um, You've come a long way from where you were. So we'll celebrate that. Yes. Yeah. It's just so hard to sit here and there's nobody here. It's all kind of quiet and you think about all these things. Especially when there was no TV. Yeah, yeah, nothing to distract you. You know, it's, uh, but what are you going to do? we got to live each day at a time. You know, you can't bring back what was. You have to go forward. Yeah. Joy for them right now is their granddaughter, Natalie, who at the time we talked was just about to leave to start college at University of Nebraska as part of their ROTC program. So and now our little putz and is going to college. Can you believe that, Barb? I know I can't. I really can't. She's going to college. But she's, you know what, Muriel, she's ready. You think so? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think so, too. I really think she's going to do well, and I, I, I can't wait to see her in ROTC, she's going to do well. Yeah. 
tough little cookie or whoever she, you know, you sit down. Yep. But she will do well. I'll let John have the very last word at the end of the episode. But as we wrap up, I wanted to share some final thoughts from Vina and Marilyn. I asked both of them, and this was admittedly totally selfishly motivated on my part, but I'm so glad I did. I asked them to think back to when they were my age and what wisdom they had for their younger selves. So how old are you this year, Vina? I am 83. 83. So I'm 33 this year. I was 50 when you were born. So 50. So <clears throat> what were you doing when you were 33? I was, I was teaching. And I was having a good time with my family and friends. Yeah, yeah, that was... So what, like, what do you know now that you wish you had known at 33? I wish I would have known what my mother used to tell me, and she was so right. Stop and smell the flowers. Because I was so busy. In order to get up, and I was, I was a mom, make <clears throat> breakfast from scratch, pack the lunches, you know, and um, <clears throat> get the beds changed. Every day had a bed, a different bed was changed and all that, I was so programmed that I didn't enjoy <clears throat> my family as much as I should have. Yeah. That's what I learned. And it, I learned it the hard way, you know. Marilyn's reflections were strikingly similar, actually, to both Vina and John's. Here's what she had to say. Almost 87. Yeah, I can't hardly believe I'm that old. But I'm starting to slow down. Like physically, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, physically slowing down. I'm not quite as hipped up on doing things as I was yeah. earlier. Yeah. I'm going to be 87. Be 87. Okay, I'm 33. What do you know at 87 that you wish you had known at 33? <sighs> well, I guess with age comes wisdom. So, I suppose I could have done some things different in my life, but a little bit smarter, a little, a little like more thought. But I can't think of anything offhand. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I guess that would probably be. You're always smarter as you get older because you made these mistakes and uh, and you learn from them. Mm-hmm. And whatever you would consider a mistake, I mean, it's just. Uh, And as someone who just recently turned 30 myself, semi-recently, a few years ago, and more importantly, as someone who angsts all the time about life and all the things I want to do, I got such a kick out of this final story from Miss Marilyn. I was working at Stoper already. Mm -hmm. And when I turned 30, I thought, oh my heavens, I was always the youngest. It was hard for me to accept 30. And I I thought that was sort of the end of the world, 30. (laughs) And, uh, but after I, I think I moped for a month. And after that, oh, who cares? You know, I accepted 40, 50, 60, 70, all the way. That was never never a thought, but. So but if you can go back, 30, turning 30 was a big milestone for me. 
if you could go back and talk to your talk to thirty year old birthday Marilyn, what would you tell her? <laughs> what would you tell her, thirty year old Marilyn? Enjoy life. Just enjoy life, and I guess uh, when you're growing up, you're learning from your mistakes whatever the mistakes might be. And uh, I'm seeing my grandchildren at that age now. And uh, Miranda's 33, but Nick tur turned 30. And he's given me these two beautiful little great-granddaughters. And I, I was with them over the weekend and, and it was just so much fun watching them. At the very, very end of our interview, actually when Vina was walking me out to the car, I happened to press record one last time, just in time to hear Vina share the most beautiful metaphor for a day well lived. I'm just trying to make it through one day and then another day. And you know, you take a day and you use it like bottling clay. You try to make it into the best you can. and. Uh, at the end of the day, you hope that it, it looks halfway decent, you know? Yes. <laughs> and you hope it looks halfway decent. Amen, Miss Vina. So I heard a seminary professor say one time that, while not all pastors are wise, if you stay in ministry long enough, it gives you an extra good shot at becoming wise. But of course, it isn't really ministry, right? It's any chance we get to bump up against other people and do life together. I certainly make no great claims to wisdom myself, um, but I'm definitely the wiser for having heard the memories and reflections of John and Vina and Marilyn. The poet Neil Gaiman writes, the world out there is complicated and there are beasts in the night and delight and pain. And the only thing that makes it okay sometimes is to reach out a hand in the darkness Find another hand to squeeze and not be alone. And that's what stories do, right? They help us make sense of this complicated world and the beasts in the night and the delight and the pain. So thank you so much. Thanks to John and Vina and Marilyn for being a hand for us to hold as we all bumble through life. And thanks to all of you who are listening. May we all be inspired to listen to other stories, share our own stories and honor all of them as the treasures that they are. This concludes our Memory Lane podcast mini-series. We will soon be handing podcast hosting duties over to Pastor John, who has all kinds of fascinating people on whose conversations you'll get to listen in through future episodes of Belief Beat. But I will sign off for now, and I'm going to let our interviewee John Purnell and wife Barb have the last word. Uh, here is what their granddaughter Natalie had to say about John and Barb's proposal that they come visit her at college every single weekend. Bye for now, friends. I don't think the schoolwork's going to be I, I told her Natalie, too hard for her. Uh, Natalie and I talked about it. And we probably can come out on the weekend and Boy, this to is visit you. And she looked at me and she said, no, I don't think so, Papa. <laughs> I said, well, maybe we can just do it every two weeks. No, 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 not that, Papa. <laughs> and I said, well, how about once a month, Natalie? That's reasonable. No, Papa, I'll let you know. <laughs>
I'll let you know when I'm ready. She can, she can handle him so well. It's good. Give her a chance to, you know, spread her wings. That's and... what she needs. Is, you know, 